0: Welcome to What Does Eugenics Mean to Us?, a podcast from the UCL Sarah Parker Raymond Centre. I'm your host, Subhadra Das, and for the last 10 years, I've been researching the history and legacy of eugenics at UCL in the sciences and beyond. In this podcast, I've brought together some brilliant researchers for some fascinating and insightful conversations across the disciplinary divides. Together we are going to discuss, examine, critique and explode eugenic thinking. How are racism, ableism, sexism and class warfare embedded in our ways of thinking about and perceiving other people? What can we do to challenge and dismantle those ideas and structures? As a university and a community of researchers, what does eugenics mean to us? The subject of this episode is Science and Technology Studies. When I first came to university, I had no idea that the History and Philosophy of Science was an actual thing that a person could study, let alone a thriving academic discipline with a whole department dedicated to exploring and uncovering the stories around our science. My guests today are Chiara Ambrosio, Associate Professor in History and Philosophy of Science in the UCL Department of Science and Technology Studies, with a special focus on the history of art and science. Chiara is one of the co-founders of Impropera the improvised opera production inspired by objects from science museums. Emily Dawson, Associate Professor in Science Communication at UCLSTS, Emily was awarded the Philip Levy Hume Prize in 2020 for her work on the sociology of science and education, getting people to talk across the science-non-science disciplinary divide. Rukia Barlow, who's part of the team who runs Science London, a volunteer-led organisation dedicated to training and enabling scientists and science communicators to employ equitable practice within their work. And lastly, Angela Saini, award-winning writer, science journalist and broadcaster whose two most recent books tackle and challenge the inbuilt inequalities in the life sciences. In Inferior, she looked at the science of gender, and in Superior, she looked at the science of race. So the first question that I have is, what is science and technology studies? The reason I ask the question is, when I came to university, I did not know that this was a topic I could study. And I think if I had known, I would have liked to. So tell us, tell us about what it is as a topic. So
1: I can go first. I am in the Department of Science and Technology Studies, so I'm happy to break the ice there. Science and Technology Studies is the coolest discipline you can ever find out there in the range of academic disciplines, right? It looks at science, but it is a field that looks at science from the perspective of the humanities and the social sciences. So our field covers areas like the history of science, where is it that science comes from, and uh, you open a lot of archives connected to science and you find the most incredible material that really challenges the view of science that we have in society. We look at philosophy of science, what kind of grants the authority of science in our society? How do scientists reason? uh, What kind of ethical questions come up in scientific research? What kind of ethical questions should come up? in scientific research. We then also cover science communication, which is about how science is portrayed in the media. And we look at science policy, what is and what are the relationships between science and government, for example. We look at the governance of emerging technologies. We look at responsible research and innovation. So really it is the most amazing field you could think of. Although maybe we should ask Rokia, shes because she's newer
2: perhaps and less indoctrinated than you and I, yeah. <laughs>
3: Fair enough. Well, for fear of sounding like an advert for UCL's STS department, similar to Sabadra, I would say that if I had known, because because coming from kind of bench and lab science, if I had known that something like STS existed, I think I definitely would have gone down that route sooner. For me, it, it did all the things that Kiara said, but it gave me a place for asking some of the questions about how science can be better and realizing that science isn't this objective gathering of knowledge and information that happens in a vacuum and the way that it impacts society. My particular interests are the way that science and policy as mechanisms of social order or social control impact, kind of perpetuate existing inequalities and the way that we can use science, use scientific evidence to disrupt that or combat that. So yeah, science and technology studies, it gives you a lot of foundational information about where science comes from, who gets to be a scientist, what that means, the philosophy of science, but then looking more contemporarily about the way we're using science in society at the moment and who is included and excluded from that kind of, not just creating scientific knowledge, but from benefiting from scientific innovation and technology.
2: Angela, do you want to talk about it from your perspective? Because you are not a dorky academic like us. In a not, you know, in a no offence way.
4: yeah, <laughs> I, yeah, and I didn't study this. Either. I don't come from that discipline either. I come from engineering. And I think maybe like Subudra, if I'd known that that course existed, I would have liked to do it as well. I actually did something adjacent to STS. When I was working at the BBC, I started doing a degree part-time at the Department of War Studies at King's, which is a very realist but non-disciplinary department. It doesn't really sit anywhere. But that's where I was first exposed to feminist critiques of science and technology, particularly obviously weaponry and and war and critical race theory and Foucault and Popper and (laughs) things that I wasn't taught when I was doing my engineering degree, and it really did help shape the way that I did my work later. Even if I didn't realise it at the time, it did help me question the things I've been taught very deeply.
0: And the thing that I was going to ask you alongside of that is, how do you go about doing that in in your practice? So I know that some of you do it academically, some of you do it in practice, some of you write things. What is your sci practice?
2: So my undergrad was in biological sciences, but I did it at UCL. And I didn't know about STS, but took a few history and philosophy and science policy modules. And then years later, found myself working in museums and in science museums and thinking, there are some really fishy things going on here. You know, there's some, there's some clearly racialized practices. There's some clearly gendered practices. The class war seems to be central to how museums operate. What is happening? And, you know, and so many more. So even in making exhibitions, which I only did for a little while, I was really, I could start to see these problems and no one else I worked with wanted to talk about them. So I went into research. And the research project I did eventually was looking at how people experience science in their day-to-day lives. They were all from the borough I lived in in London, so Southwark and Lambeth. And they were grassroots community groups who'd coalesced around either a migration issue or an issue that they'd faced in London. So they were different racialized groups. And because of the boroughs and because of the way migration works for certain groups in this country, they weren't living in poverty, but they weren't rich. They were that sort of, it's hard to say working class because migration had distorted their class trajectories. And it wasn't that they were anti-science and we often fall into these really shorthand ways of thinking about this. They weren't anti-science, but it was really clear to them that science wasn't for them. I mean, people know when something's built in such a way as it excludes them and it excludes them on so many different fronts that it becomes quite problematic. So their involvement in it or their support of it or their participation in it is kind of foreclosed in ways that are very difficult to overcome. And that they themselves recognize enough that they don't want to do it like if you say to me this thing it's not for you it's not about you actually when you do encounter it it's going to be at best neutral at worst really offensive you're going to feel really uncomfortable you're going to be the one that has to do the work of making you fit i mean that's repellent stuff isn't it you don't no one wants to do that so i came to this sort of world of eugenics history of science From this idea that contemporary science in popular culture is really racialized, is really gendered, is really classed, is homophobic, it's heteronormative, it's ableist, it's ageist. It's hugely problematic. And its interests serve a sort of quite a narrow dominant group. And that that's not just because of the medium. It's not just the way museum exhibits are done or the way nature documentaries are done, although there are issues around that. But it's also because of the content, and some of that content is really repellent stuff. And eugenics is, a, is almost, I mean, it offers us an upsettingly good case study of why science as a form of knowledge is deeply problematic.
0: Rakia, how do you and your colleagues at Science London go about addressing those problems? That
3: work is kind of broken down into the training and the events that we put on that hopefully give scientists and science communicators some practical tools for how they can implement equitable practice in their work. So some of it is a bit of an educational piece. It is bringing the history of science and things like eugenics into the forefront, because we are still having lots of conversations with scientists and science communicators about science as objective and kind of being insulated from some of these social concerns and not understanding how. So a lot of the conversations in science communication are about reaching underserved communities, and who those communities are, without people possibly realizing that it's eugenic ideologies that have created these underserved communities in the first place, and the idea that some people can, I don't know, inherently deserve to be excluded from science or have been left behind because that was always the position within society that they were going to take. And now a lot of science communication seems to be trying to correct that without addressing how those people became underserved in the first place. So that's part of the work we're trying to do, to say that these people, it's not that they were left behind by accident or that this is some kind of blip in what has happened with the, you know, the spread of scientific knowledge. They were left behind by design. Science was never designed to include them. The stories we tell about science don't include them for for a reason. They don't include people like me and very much, you know, speaking to what Emily was saying earlier, me coming into science very much felt like doing that work of making science fit around me and having to have a lot of support from teachers and my family to go into spaces, academic spaces, that were very white, often very male, and having to prove over and over again that I deserve to be there. And, you know, it's so completely understand why people don't want to do that. Part of the work in Science London is that educational piece of the, the science that we all love isn't perfect, but... Here are things that we can do to make it better. And it's, you know, we're not critiquing science because we're anti-science. It's actually because we love science and we want science to do better because, you know, the stories we tell about science are powerful and they have really shaped what modern science is.
0: And how, how do people find, because the, there's a lot involved in that. And it's interesting, you know, the language has changed a bit. They are now underserved communities. They used to be hard to reach communities, but the, but the perspective still tends to kind of be the same. How receptive have you found people to this idea that that science in itself is not just some sort of neutral, objective, beneficial? How receptive are people to to this message in terms of, of how we get that news across?
1: I think they are more receptive than it is normally portrayed. So what I find is when I talk to scientists about their kind of input in interpreting evidence, for example... You will always hear, yeah, yeah, of course, this is what we do, we interpret things in that particular way, right? So so I think the, the, the question is uh, how that challenge that comes from uh, a field that is not construed as science is perceived rather than what actually scientific practice consists of. And I think in my case, I've experienced this because when you introduce yourself as a philosopher of science, you are immediately on the black books. You are immediately, oh, we're not gonna trust you because you are going to undermine us anyway, right? So then you need to sort of really work harder for your credentials to be accepted. And I, I suspect, Angela, you probably have a very, very similar experience of the harder work that you need to put into just being accepted, not as the woman who is there like poking the theories, but in fact, as the person who is trying to understand and make sense and dig a little bit deeper into the kind of philosophical assumptions underpinning certain concepts that are taken for granted. I mean, my favourite line is, even when when we talk about objectivity, we are talking about a concept that has a history. And we've been theorising and thinking about what counts as objective evidence or what counts as a matter of fact out there in the world. We've been theorising that differently. A lot of work that I've done on visual displays, really shows that the different ways in which we've been representing bits of science really have changed. They are subject to styles of representation. Some of them have been more acceptable than others. And so that kind of idea is not a matter of, as Rokia was saying, being anti-science. It's just fleshing out the complexity and the, the historicity of science from
4: my point of view.
0: Angela was does that ring bells with you in terms of your experience
4: I recognize that experience as I've seen it in others so I remember years ago when I was doing writing an article about researchers in a lab working with a bioethicist and the bioethicist was sitting in these meetings and being ignored the whole time and being undermined the whole time she she had to be there because they were required to have her there but I knew that the scientists didn't really want her there or or wanted to pay attention to her. And that tension, I think, still exists now, which is really tragic because I don't think we move the sciences forward unless the philosophers and the bioethicists and the social scientists in those rooms are being listened to and engaged with. From my perspective, yes, I do sometimes get pushback from scientists who don't uh, accept what I'm saying or don't want to incorporate it into their work, although that has changed. So it's been interesting for me how the reception to my books have shifted, especially as the politics has shifted. So with Black Lives Matter, suddenly all these doors that were shut opened up completely and everybody wanted to jump on board, which I was so grateful for. But I did think, that's interesting, because it proves that then it is the politics that is driving you rather than the science, because the science doesn't change, the politics is the thing that's changing, which proves our point, really, you know, that that everything is cultural, everything is affected by the societies that we're in. One of the benefits for me is that I don't write for other academics, I write for the public. And I have to be very careful, I think, with that, because what I don't want to do is put out a narrative that undermines trust in science to the public, especially in an age of, uh, in the age of the pandemic, because that can do just as much harm as anything else. So while I want people to understand the issues around objectivity in science and the constraints around the assumptions that scientists have made in the past, what I also want them to do is realise that At the same time, this is a project and a process that you can place your trust in relative to the conspiracy theorists or the misinformation peddlers online. And it's very, you have to be very careful with that. And it has worried me sometimes that when we put out a narrative, for example, that about Uh, underserved communities in medicine that you know certain clinical trials haven't been broad enough sometimes the message of the public here is drugs tested on white people won't work on black people which is false you know that is just incorrect and yet I hear that a lot I think some not everybody but some of the people who haven't taken up the vaccine is because of exactly that message so we have to be very mindful I think of the like like Rokia said about the narratives absolutely Emily did you want to come in on that
2: yeah I mean that was so interesting even just what Angela said there makes me go into my research zone like oh well. So what? what's very interesting to me in since I've been doing this kind of world of work is if you look at the difference in how scientific communities respond to these kinds of questions versus what happens when they become public and it's really and that's going to sound really mean, but I find it really refreshing the way Angela's just re- like framed that delicate balance between information and critique. Because what I've seen so many times, whether it's in television documentaries or it's in museums and science centers or other forms of public engagement, is there some weird shift happens when science moves out into this public space and I'm going to use the word scientism and sub's going to laugh at me and I will explain it, I promise. But that almost that kind of malleability of certain aspects of science when it's in process, when it's in a scientific community, when it's being worked on, sort of evaporates a little bit. So you have, for instance, I'm thinking of a particular nature documentary about the kind of missing the origin, you know, an- animal origin ancestors. So particular fish fossil that might explain the move from A to B. Or I'm thinking about, again, natural history, but exhibitions where things have been told in the very specific, and I suppose drawing on Rokia's point, like one story sort of way. And they become, those stories themselves become fossilized. They become more traditional, more conservative in the small C sense, more uh, authoritative. And they start to take on this, you know, what we might call epistemic authority of science. And again, so in that, that scientific model is about science as the ultimate authority, the the absolute explanation, often ignoring the cultural and political and social factors that go into making that particular set of knowledge. And in my experience, rarely comes from within the scientific community, but often does come in these spaces where science becomes public, so that the message that the public needs very often is not one mediated by a sense of something being worked out or something that's still in flux or something on which there are a number of opinions. And of course, we know from the climate change debates and the research on that, that sometimes you do get a a sense of polarized two different opinions. And that's a particular piece of media work. And again, highly political. But when you look at something like natural history, for instance, there's often one very dominant narrative once that becomes public. And I think that is highly problematic in a slightly different way.
3: In terms of that one narrative, definitely in the work that I do on science advice and kind of policy-relevant science, the creation of that one narrative, even around science, like COVID, which is, there are so many unknowns still, where it's something we're realising is very much constructed behind the scenes by the, the, this kind of narrow pool of expertise that's brought in to create scientific advice. It's, it's, a, de, it's a deliberate construct to give this veneer of consensus to in a possibly to stop the public from kind of poking holes in the science and to increase public trust in scientific knowledge, but also possibly because the scientific community don't trust the public to deal with uncertainty. They don't trust that the public can handle that. So they feel like they have to present this one narrative, or I don't know, there'd be chaos or something. But I think it's it's definitely something that we see a lot in science as it relates to policy, this pushing of this one narrative, because otherwise the public just won't know what to do, despite the fact that we know that people are very good at weighing up risks in their own lives anyway. And if you presented them with all of the options, they would make rational decisions. But just coming back to how people respond to this kind of critiquing of science or some of the messages that we're putting out from Science London. Just anecdotally, we've recently put out a call for new volunteers. And despite it quite clearly explaining what we do and what we're about on our website, we still had people request to join. And then after further conversation, come back to us and say, actually, I don't think I can do this because I don't want to talk about science as political. And there are still people who think that they can that they want to be part of these conversations, but are very resistant to understanding the way that science is embedded with social and cultural biases and really wanting to hold on to that scientistic view of science, finding it really, like, when it really comes down to it and implementing that in their practice, just finding it really difficult to let go of that. So that's definitely something that we found quite interesting as a, as a collective.
0: Where do we think that comes from? Because in a a way, one of the discourses that we're really used to hearing about, despite it not necessarily being grounded in as much history as it should be, is that difference between science and religion and the idea that, you know, science is is truth, big T, little t truth, and that religion is is based on some kind of aspect of blind faith and believing things you can't see. Scientism, to me, sounds almost like a religion in in that kind of way.
1: I mean, I think the the history of the relationship between science and religion actually casts quite a bit of light on that because... uh... Historians of science have dissected that history quite in detail and they have come up with very sophisticated historiographical explanations that actually point to the fact that science and religion, the the parting of ways of science and religion is a relatively recent uh, phenomenon, right? So I think to a certain extent, it's kind of scary to live in a secular world, right? It's terrifying to live in a world without God. And I say it because I come from a deeply Catholic country and from a deeply Catholic upbringing, right? That sense of comfort that you get from religion. So you need to find, and independently of the psychological comfort that you get from the religion, and here I'm going very philosophical, you need a metaphysics. You need some kind of framework that says... uh, this is what there is, and we are investigating how that works. And I think that however anti-metaphysical scientism might be, it is actually that replacement of a metaphysical framework. You know, you're just replacing it with what is purported to be a rational explanation based on facts and uh, um, objective measurements and uh, empiricism. But I do think it is itself a byproduct of, uh, you know, the kind of articulation of the relationship between. And I think it's not a coincidence The scientism is so going hand in hand with a certain atheist worldview, right?
4: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that's true. We have to also remember that in it's not a universal thing that science and religion are separated. So in India, for instance, there is far less separation between science and religion. And in fact, sometimes they're deeply interwoven. So for example, I remember when I went to the Indian Space Research Organization, they told me that before every big rocket launch, they would the scientists would all go and give an offering at the temple to hope that you know it went well and it was part it was woven into the way that they thought about the science and sometimes also directing what the scientists did in terms of what they wanted to explore and what they didn't want to explore and what they were trying to prove that can be problematic sometimes when it mixes with religious nationalism or ethnic nationalism it can feed those ideologies but that division is a western thing rather than a universal thing and I agree that there's a degree of faith involved in trusting science you have to trust the establishment of science and the people who are doing it and that's that involves a leap of faith to some extent yeah because we're not doing science ourselves we're not all you know doing the experiments and observing things ourselves we're trusting the people who are doing it for us so there is a degree of faith involved there
1: and the scientists are trusting their own instruments and of course like they've got good reasons uh, to trust their own re- instruments but sometimes uh, they don't one of the things that got me into eugenics in the very first instance was in fact uh, galton's composite portraits right the composite photographs and at the beginning and that kind of takes me back to how we started this conversation i I learned about the the expression composite photograph through philosophy. There was a philosopher I was studying who used composite photography as a completely innocent philosophical metaphor to talk about ideas, right? And then I started, so I just inherited it and I was using it. I mean, this was many years ago. Uh, but I was using it myself quite innocently, taking it for granted. Then I said, well, maybe I should go and dig a little bit more into the history of this uh, expression. One of the things that really opened my eyes was a beautiful essay by the historian Carlo Ginsburg who actually goes all the way back and traces the genealogy of that expression and how that ex- and how it was rooted into material culture, material practices. Now you go and look at how Galton talks about composite portraits, and he says, this is the ultimate form of empiricism. This is how ideas would be generated if we were unlimited human beings. Because there is a photographic process that does... The portrait then what you have is an automation of how you identify typical traits and you sort of separate accidental traits and you just get the typical traits emerging from the center of the portrait And then you go and dig into the process and it was ridiculously flawed because he had worked out exposure times fractionally, he had worked them out linearly. So ultimately, when you go and expose the portraits to a single plate, what you have is that the last portrait is always like taking over the previous one. And you can't do it with more than eight portraits. And yet, Galton says these are real generalizations. So he was placing on the instrument, on the apparatus, a level of trust and authority. And I mean, at that point, you need to pull apart, I think, the rhetoric about what the apparatus can achieve versus what he was really doing with the apparatus itself. I think it's one of the most problematic aspects of the history of eugenics that then made me question everything. Because I have inherited a very innocent expression, but it also speaks, I think, of issues of measurement, of uh, what kind of evidence do we have and what kind of account of the practices uh, scientists give us uh, and how we go about dissecting it historically and what we learn from that.
0: That's something I definitely sympathise with is when you know about eugenics, suddenly you see the world in a completely different way in ways that you you haven't before yeah does anyone have anything else they want to add in terms of like did did eugenics really how did you come to it and did it shift your view of the world or how is it shifting your view of the world does it continue to do so I I think as I mentioned earlier coming to eugenics is something that I'm still
3: I think coming to terms with and the way it's so deeply ingrained in science and in popular culture I think it's something I the, the, the way that it's made me see the world differently obviously in the research that I do but even in the things that sit on the periphery of scientific knowledge like uh, science fiction. And I read a lot of kind of science fiction and and just realising that even in fiction, or even if you watch something that's, you know, post-apocalyptic or that sits on the kind of edges of science and sci-fi, hierarchies within society are always written into these things. There is always some kind of hierarchy based on some kind of innate characteristic you know we're creating worlds imaginary worlds with species of beings that don't exist but there is always a hierarchy and I think understanding the history of eugenics made me see how that kind of logic feeds its way into scientific knowledge into fantasy into popular culture just this need for there to be a hierarchy for there always to be winners and losers as if that is inevitable and the way that we internalize those kind of logics in our own lives and the way particularly marginalized communities internalize inequality and internalize kind of their position within society their relationship to science as inevitable so yeah more more to learn but it's definitely opened my eyes
4: (laughs) i'd
2: absolutely agree with that there's so there's so much to unpick about this idea of eugenics and how it's permeated so much of the worlds we encounter so from a research perspective as someone with one foot in science and technology studies and one foot in in education and learning there's so much to think about in terms of how we measure and not just within you know what we might quote unquote call pure scientific communities but any form of measurement of humans whether it's sociological educational it's all deeply embedded in these constructs and what Catherine McKittrick last week was talking about race is a fiction but it's a fiction that we live through all the time so if you look for instance at work on how how students are measured how educational outcomes are measured they are highly impacted by these kind of very old ideas of eugenics that are you know as we've said really racialized really gendered really classed and so on and so we have to sort of try and unpack if you look for instance at recent work in genetics and some of the implications for education and often people in genetics more recently as david gilborne's work suggests they shy away from talking about race or clear terms but often it's there and it's implicit within what they're saying and this idea that there's even taking environmental facts into account some element of genetic determinism creeps through so i think that in terms of doing any research ever i know in my own research practice it's something that i'm really painfully aware of whenever we construct any kind of survey or an interview to try and think through how how all of those implications will, will fan out but then you know given that a lot of my research is on this science and popular culture we were talking last week about assassin's creed because i share rakia's love of <laughs> dreadful fantasy films and books and assassin's creed obviously is based on the game and i don't know who else has seen it and i'm not really advising you watch it unless you want to see a case study of eugenics and popular culture but that is a film entirely premised on ideas of eugenics, the whole film. And there's some other, you know, what we might call dodgy science ideas in there too. But, the, the, you know, this idea that you could inherit characteristics around criminality, around violence, around being a murderer, and what that then means for these people, it's completely embedded in that story in a way that there's, there's no real comeback to that. There's not really a critique. Peek a bit within the film it's just a kind of accepted thing and I was watching it with my family and you know it was only really me spluttering and eye twitching I presume at this point because of a uh, long-term indoctrination by science and technology studies that you know what on earth is happening here how are these stories going through so if you think about it not only are we sort of swimming in a you know this, this idea in sociology swim in a super socialization and the soup that we're swimming in is one where eugenics is a significant ingredient even if it's not one that we can always I easily name or talk about very often.
0: Well, here's hoping the folks in the English department are listening because there is so much scope. Uh, there's so much more research that could be done along these lines. And hopefully there's inspiration for lots of other scientists and storytellers to widen the scope of their practice and think about how we can all work together to change science for the better. Emily Dawson, Rikia Balo, Chiara Ambrosio and Angela Saney, thank you so much for joining me, for bringing your voices to the table. And for sharing your stories. You've been listening to What Does Eugenics Mean To Us, a podcast from the Sarah Parker Raymond Centre at UCL. Your host was me, Subhadra Das, and the music was by The Blue Dot Sessions. The producer was Keris Bradley.